that's the exciting phase we're coming into crypto like all these narratives are very powerful in an era where there are no use cases but in an era that there are use cases the only thing that matters is those use cases themselves that's what's exciting for solana that's what's exciting for kill this episode is brought to you by das london blockworks number one institutional crypto conference for all the top institutions and people in crypto are going to be this march in london what's becoming maybe the crypto hub of the world I have a link in the show notes where you can learn more and also a discount code that will get you 20 percent off so click the link find out more and i'll see you there What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we are joined by Ted Livingston, who is our first guest to come back on the podcast. I was listening to the first episode today, and it's one of my favorite that we've done to date. So everybody's got to go listen to that. Ted, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Awesome to be here. Yeah, well, I'm going to drive everyone to that last podcast we recorded, but I do want to go over your background and what you're working on today first before we get into a big announcement that Code has this morning. So, Ted, maybe you can just talk a little bit about your journey with Kick and then Ken and now with Code. I know that's a lot there, but I know you can handle it. <laughs> yeah, we could we could start with that. I'll try to give the uh, what the the two minute version, maybe the TLD. Um, yeah, so so I I started on the the entrepreneur journey, if you will, uh, back in two thousand nine. So it's actually going to be fifteen years ago in January, which is pretty wild for me to think about. Uh, that's when I started Kick, built up Kick Messenger into one of the most popular apps in the world. You know, over a hundred million users. Uh, that was amazing. In, in that journey, we were actually the first to build developer platforms. So we were the first chat app in the world to launch a native app platform in 2011, first chat app in the world to launch a web app platform in 2012, and then the first chat app in the Western world to launch chatbots in 2014. And you know that's where uh, Tencent, makers of WeChat, got really excited. I wrote this post nine years ago now, the race to be the WeChat of the West. You know, and they said to us, like, listen, we think this is a huge opportunity. And if anybody can do it, it's either you guys or Facebook. So they invested $50 million at a billion dollar valuation. Uh, so super exciting uh, journey. But as we moved to build this WeChat the West, the, the challenge we ran into always was just plugging into the financial system. You know, uh, so much of WeChat is about paying for things, buying things, getting paid for things. The thing that we didn't appreciate is for WeChat, they really just have one market, which is China. Whereas if we wanted to build the WeChat of the West, you know, there's dozens and dozens of countries that we'd want to support and interact with each other. And each of those countries has a different financial system with different rules. And it just made it like absolutely impossible to plug into. And so this is where we thought crypto could be really exciting. And, you know, almost in the way Kick went over the top um, and sort of replaced SMS by launching one app that the entire world could get at once. Could we do the same thing with self-custodial blockchain technology? You know, now if, if you could make self-custodial work for the average user, then you could roll out an app and you could roll out new features to everybody in the world at once. Because you, now you're not a bank. Now the user is their own bank. And so you can you can go over the top and could that finally unlock the opportunity to build the WeChat of the West? Uh, so that was Ken. You know, build all this together. Love the name Ken. I launched that in 2017. Super challenging journey, you know, starting on Ethereum and just having the technology be absolutely impossible. Done more blockchain migrations than any other cryptocurrency out there. Um, also on the regulatory side, went through like a huge battle with the SEC. Came out of that though. Um, and then so got to the point where we finally got on Solana. That felt like finally we had the infrastructure we needed, the base L1 chain. And so I've been spending the last almost three years now building the payments platform on top of it with code. 
Amazing. Yeah. So, so kick, you, you hinted at this, but it was one of the fastest growing consumer apps ever. I, I might have these metrics wrong, but I think it's in one week it, or no, in two weeks, it went from zero to a million people signed up. And then week like two to three, it went from 1 million to 2 million people. It's absolutely absurd. It was wild. And this is uh, back in 2010 when people were still getting smartphones. It was absolutely wild. Yeah, I, I do want to touch on one thing quickly. I asked you, was one of the big reasons that Kick took off so quickly is because you were able to support multiple platforms, which was like you had Android at the time, but you also had iOS. And you said yes, but you think that's differently in crypto. Can you maybe explain again why that is? Because I think that really like hit home with me. So a big part of what made Kick go viral was it was the first chat app that worked great for everybody, iPhone, Android, and at the time mattered BlackBerry. Uh, so that was a big part of it. And, you know, there, the question is, is there a parallel there with blockchains? You know, a lot of blockchain teams are pursuing, you know, make a great experience for users on Ethereum and Solana. Uh, I actually think it's a bit different uh, because unlike back in the smartphone days when millions of average consumers were getting smartphones, today, no average consumer is using a blockchain. And so rather than try to support you know, a very small subset of sort of crypto enthusiasts or who are on Ethereum and crypto enthusiasts who are on Solana. We actually think the technology should be hidden from the user such that for the first time ever, we might actually be able to get those millions of users uh, into a crypto experience that haven't been using it today. One thing I want to touch on before we get to your announcement is maybe framing the conversation around a concept called micropayments. Right. So micropayments have been around. The concept has been around for some time and people have always wondered, OK, I think was a Paul Graham or Y Combinator who thinks that micropayments should be like the thing, but it's just never happened because of ridiculous take rates by card processors and whatnot. Can you maybe give us a brief history of the concept of micropayments, why they haven't worked in the past and um, go from there? Totally. So yeah, let me start with micropayments and then I can zoom out a bit into you know how that fits into the, the go-to-market options. So the, the context here is we built this amazing technology and the question is what problem can it solve uniquely that can't be solved by existing payment platforms like Stripe, Visa, et cetera. Uh, and so for a whole bunch of reasons, we think the best opportunity is in micropayments. Now, the idea of micropayments is not new. It's been around a long time. People have been talking about it for a long time, and yet it you know, never seems to get there. It's always right around the corner. And so there's different schools of thought on this. Like some people are like, well, we haven't really had a great platform on the other side. No, even if we did have a great platform, they just wouldn't work. And so what I did is when we started to think that micropayments was a good opportunity, I actually went on Google and I searched micropayments don't work. And I read the first 200 results. And what I realized is there's lots of theories and narratives for why micropayments won't work. You know, oh, there's too much overhead for the consumer to make such a small purchase, this reason or that reason. But the reality is we've never had an open payment platform that allows any developer to do micropayments. You know, there's been attempts with, hey, download this newsreader app and then publishers can sign up to put their articles in this app. And then users can buy a big balance and then buy articles one at, time, one at a time. But then it's not an open payment platform. It's a newsreader app where maybe some publishers will post, maybe they won't. And so I think that's what's super exciting about what we're doing is for the first time ever in the history of the internet, 
you can charge anywhere from five cents to a dollar. Anyone in the world, super slick experience. And it's just a flat one penny per payment fee. And so we're pretty excited about that. I love one of your quotes as it's not what can we do better when you're talking about like the crypto space compared to something that's centralized? It's what can they not do that we can? And I think for you, like with code, you started with digital cash, then you had like cash links and this is, but you've, those have caught on and it's an amazing product, but you yourself have said it doesn't have product market fit. And that's where micropayments come into this. Totally. I think that's like super well said. Like we built digital paper cash, you know, make crypto as simple as handing somebody a $5 bill. And people loved it. They're like, wow, this is the best we've ever seen. You know, it's the first app you could ever use with your non-crypto friends. You use it with your mom or your brother or your, you know, your college friends, whoever it might be. So people were super excited about it, but it didn't retain. And the reason it didn't retain is because it's not 10 times better than Venmo. It's two times worse. Because, you know, you hand, you know, $5 of crypto to your friend. They go, wow, that's amazing. And then they go, well, what can I do with it? And if the answer is like, oh, you can go through this crazy offboarding process and sign up and KYC and then get the money into your bank account and then you can spend it. Like, well, why wouldn't I just avoid all that and you just send it to me on Venmo? And so we thought it was super helpful to do peer-to-peer to sort of set the, the technology, the product, the constraints. But then from there, when it comes to go to market, we think it's about finding something that only crypto can do. And if you look at all the options, like what can Visa, Stripe, et cetera, not do, it's allowed developers to charge a dollar or less. Yeah, I think this is super exciting and extremely under-discussed. I made a tweet about it, I think a few days ago, maybe a week or two ago, about how this just is something that's actually only possible on Solana because of $0.00025 fees um, being actually feasible. And I'm actually somebody who reads a lot and I have a lot of subscriptions and stuff that I forget about. And so if I had something like this where I can actually just read articles per microtransaction or, or whatnot, that'd be awesome. And so I'm pretty excited for it. Um, I am curious exactly on maybe some of the technical folks listening, how it works at a high level. So there's the code app. I'm not sure if it ties into this. Like if I see an article, do I just point my phone at it and then unlock the article that way? Or if there's something else going on? Yeah, so that's exactly right. It builds on the digital paper cash metaphor and the cash link metaphor. So if you go to uh, an article on your desktop and the developer, the publisher has integrated code micropayments, you, know, you scroll down, you see a pay with code button, it pops up a digital paper receipt. So now instead of digital paper cash that you grab and you pull onto your phone, now it's a digital paper receipt that you grab and pull onto your phone. So that makes it super simple for the user, but also super secure. So boom, just grab the receipt, swipe, boom, article unlocks instantly. So it's a super slick experience, but for you know my mom, like she understands it immediately because it just feels like the physical world. Yeah, I like these developer use cases you're talking about now, which is really like micropayments. And I had Chow on, um, who basically does like the Y Combinator of Web3 right now. And he's with you. He thinks that's where the value is going to be, at least in the short term. Uh, he's like in the US, everyone's just going to use Venmo. I am curious, just from an adoption standpoint with code, do you see adoption on peer-to-peer mostly outside of the US? Or is that where most of the adoption is? Because I would assume they could have real value there because like Venmo may not exist in a lot of these other countries. Uh, the short answer is not really. You know, we've had thousands of people download and create accounts and try out code, but very few retain, whether that's in the U.S. or abroad. And this is actually an interesting thing because we would say like, oh, in the U.S., like 
peer-to-peer solve, just use Venmo, but in these other countries, you know, it's always in these other countries. <laughs> but when you dig into it, no, they don't, you know, they have their own payment tools in these other countries as well. They have their own incumbent financial institutions in these other countries as well. And they have the, their own corporations who don't want to allow crypto in because it impedes on their incumbent business. And so just like it's tricky to, you know, off-ramp in the U.S., it's tricky to off-ramp in most of these other countries as well. To the point, actually, there's many African countries I found out where just using crypto is just illegal. You know, it's not just difficult, it's actually illegal. So I think we've had this narrative for a long time of, well, maybe not peer-to-peer in the U.S., but maybe peer-to-peer to those other countries. But when you actually dig into it, the adoption in those other countries is actually quite low as well. And when you look into the incentives, it makes sense. They have their own incumbent institutions there too who want to make the adoption of crypto as difficult as possible. So you you have a product or solution here that's essentially something that wasn't possible before. It works great. It's smooth UX. And now I think probably the challenge will be how do we get people to adopt this? And because it's not something that has existed before and it requires a, a fundamental shift in how people think about billing models and business models, let's say, like from subscriptions to one-off and et cetera. And so you have to do some educating and, and the, the marketing there needs to be very, very clear and, and it's, it's going to be an uphill battle. But if it, if it does work, then it's going to work really great in my view. So I guess I'm curious, how do you think about the go-to-market here? What are some industries or verticals that you think benefit from this better than others? I think you nailed it. Uh, like, I think you described it perfectly. You know, there's sort of pre-tipping point and post-tipping point. And pre-tipping point, it's very difficult to get it going. And post-tipping point, you know, it can be just coming kind of this massive runaway success. And so we're definitely pre-tipping point. And so the strategy there is almost two, two-sided. So on one side, working with the, the clear, obvious application of this, which to us is publishers. You know, every consumer in the world has the experience of hitting a paywall and going, ugh, you know, how can I get around this? You know, can I go to the Wayback Machine? Is there any solution? Like, can you send me like a free version? It's just such a pain. And billions of people around the world know that pain. And so, yes, there are publishers who will say, well, I, I make subscription revenue. You know, the Wall Street Journal is like, well, I, I convert people to subscription. And I would hate to cannibalize that. For the Wall Street Journal, we totally understand. But what about for everybody else? What about for all those publishers out there who would love to make money, don't want to do ads, don't want to be intrusive with data, but they don't have enough pull to sign up people up for a $10 a month reoccurring subscription? And so we think there's like a sweet spot in there of publishers who, you know, probably starting with crypto publishers who want to try the bleeding edge, aren't able to get full subscription from most of their users today. And so by adding micropayments, it's both a cool experiment and it's not cannibalizing their existing business model. So I think that's half the strategy. And then the other half of the strategy is playing with new new, uh, use cases. You know, for example, we have a developer building a social use case. And he's had problems with spammers coming in, spamming the network, how to do all this work. Now he just says, oh, you want to create an account? That's 25 cents. And he says, just eliminated all his, all his challenges with spam. Because now it's like really code is providing that, that spam, anti-spam layer for him for free. And it's permissionless for him. It's global. And he gets, you know, 24 out of the 25 cents 
to its users. So I think it will be two. And then just I'll add one more thing. It will also be a bit unpredictable. You know, when, when the iPhone came out famously you know, today, everybody has to have an iPhone app. Well, it wasn't always that way. Facebook famously said, we're not going to build an iPhone app. We're going to pursue the mobile web. And it wasn't until years later that they made a big shift to becoming mobile first. And like really, you know, people are like, oh, are they going to be able to catch up? So these things are unpredictable. I, I don't think a bunch of Apple executives sat around and when they thought of like the categories of the first killer apps on the iPhone, they're like, you know what would be really great? Fart apps. <laughs> that will be the thing that really gets this going. So it's unpredictable in the beginning, but you know, you build a fart app, people go, wow, that's sort of funny. That's cool. And then developers say, hmm, I wonder if I could build something better. So it's both, you know, our top, you have a top downside of the strategy with publishers, but also a bottom up emergent side with developers and just empowering them more and more and more to build better and better experiences. So one thing I've heard pushback with micropayments is that you as a consumer, as a user, it's like a cognitive load that you're not used to and that like every transaction you make, you have to think like, do I want to pay 15 cents here? Do I want to pay five cents? And I think that's something that we'll see as this actually hits the market. Uh, but I do think like an analogy that I'm making in my head that could happen is when you buy like ad space on Facebook, you'll type in like what type of audience you want to reach, how many people and like what's your return on ad spend that you're looking for. And then it just automates everything for you. I think eventually that would be pretty cool if this could happen with micropayments as well. Whereas like I as a user almost have this budget that I set aside and whether it's AI or something else, it actually unlocks all these articles automatically knowing what I'm looking for. It sounds a little complex, but I think that could be cool in the future. Totally. Like I think there'll be all sorts of things, you know, that, that as you said, this is only possible on Solana. You know, that's the number one thing we hear from developers is like, I have all these ideas, but one thing is clear. I can't get this from any other platform. And I think that's the key. People say, you know, oh, you know, they have these narratives. People have these narratives all the time that they, you know, treat as fact, even though there are just narratives. Oh, I, you know, I can't deal with the cognitive overhead of spending 25 cents. I'm like, okay, well, when is the last time you decided whether or not to spend 25 cents? Uh, well, well, I haven't, but I wouldn't if I could. It's like, well, you haven't. You've never had the opportunity to spend 25 cents on the web. You cannot tell me it's because there's too much cognitive overhead. That that may be a factor down the road, but right now it's like, it just simply doesn't exist. And so we don't know. And now for the first time ever, we're going to find out. One thing I think could be quite interesting here is and you already mentioned it briefly, is kind of an anti-spam mechanism where, for example, if you log into LinkedIn, I get so many random messages from so many useless, I don't want to say useless, but okay, yeah, useless, useless kind of outreach. And um, if, 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 if I force those people like, hey, give me 10 cents before you waste my time, or, or, or like an email even, I think that would be uh, very interesting. I, I, would, I would be very, and, and on that same topic, by the way, talking about publishing, you know, I write a lot, you know, of shit posts, but some sometimes thoughtful stuff. And it would be awesome if there was like a platform where I could just start writing and not have to think about any of this. So I'm not sure if that's in, in the considerations, but if, if it did exist, I, I would use it instantly. So just, just, just FYI. So, so if we uh, built that simple tool, can we sign you up as a early customer? Yes, 100%. All right. We're here here first. Bert's committed to uh, writing a post within a week of launch. <laughs>
if you haven't listened to the last episode, that Ted and the code team are often contrarian, but also right. So like when Ted was with Kick, I think the idea was at the time you couldn't build a technology like over the existing messaging like apps or platform that was actually as good as the native like BlackBerry messaging service. You actually built something better that was cross-platform that people use. So that was kind of like one contrarian take. And then you launched like Ethereum and then Stellar, a fork of Stellar and then Solana. But I think you were the first application either to say we're going to launch in Solana or the first to migrate. Yeah. Yeah, we have a, a long history of being contrarian and, and being right, you know, not to have too much ego about that. It's more a, a function of our process of looking at all the options and working hard to find a win-win. But yeah, we were the first Web2 company to launch our own cryptocurrency in 2017. And we were the first cryptocurrency project to announce moving to Solana in 2020, early 2020. And this was back at the time, it's like, what, Solana, that VC centralized chain, that's never going to work. We're like, listen, we've looked at all the options. We've evaluated all the technology. This is the least bad option is what we always look for, which is the best option. Every option has compromises, but this one has the fewest compromises. The speed, the, the uh, vision for it, and how we get this thing to scale, we think this is going to be the best bet. And so we were the first project in the world to announce moving to Solana. Quick break to tell you about an upcoming event I promise you don't want to miss. It's BlockWorks' biggest and best institutional conference called DAS London. It's a two-day event happening in London this March. We're going to have over 700 institutions, 130 speakers, and a couple thousand of us all under one roof. Crypto is in a position for the first time to actually onboard these institutions, and they're showing up. We have companies from BlackRock to Visa launching real products in the space. We have the real-world asset narrative taking off. We have things like payments that have been exponentially growing. And then we have things like DeepEnd happening in the Solana ecosystem. There's a ton of capital right now in this institutional space. It's going to be coming on chain. It's going to completely change the industry. Whether you are an institution or you're a retail user or you just want to learn more about what's going on in the space, this conference is for you. You're going to be able to meet some of the best and smartest people in the space. The speaker lineup is absolutely incredible and you'll get to hang out with me. But the best part is you actually get 20% off your ticket if you use Lightspeed 20 when checking out. That's Lightspeed 20. I put a link in the show notes. Um, I recommend buying this today because one, you'll forget about it. Two, these ticket prices go up every single month. So anyways, I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to the show. While we're talking about announcements, uh, I know you have an announcement so let's let's have it yeah so i think we're at a very exciting point in the sort of the story of code you know we we have solana which we feel is like the best layer one i tweeted out yesterday that i think it's only a matter of time where solana simply replaces ethereum i know that's contrarian but it just feels like it's pretty much done at this point so we'll see how that plays out but we have solana now so we have that infrastructure we have kin uh, Kin is on Solana, so it has all that speed, but it's also fully decentralized and fully distributed. So there's no foundation and no inflation. So we're really excited about that. And then we have Code, you know, uh, a global payments platform to make it really magical, simple, and safe to use Kin. There's just been one challenge with that. Code has been closed source. You know, we've been working away on this thing. We're super excited about it. We're super proud of it. But as a user, as a developer, you've had to trust us how it works behind the scenes. And so in our journey, you know, we call it to, to follow through on the vision that Satoshi laid out all those years ago of a purely peer-to-peer version of Electron Cash. We think it's critical that code be open source. And so what we're announcing today is that we're open sourcing all of code. All of the app, the iOS app and the Android app the back end and everything in between. We're actually just doing a quick tally here before the call because we thought it could be a cool metric. Uh, It's looking about roughly 700,000 lines of code we've written 
that we're going to be open sourcing and open sourcing under an MIT license. So people can take it, contribute to, to it, fork it, do whatever they want with it. That's amazing. That is so cool. I think I think for people that are not um, developers or technical, when I think of crypto, I always thought everything was open source because if it's on a blockchain, you can read it. It's there. The contracts are there. So can you maybe explain how do closed source contracts even work on something like Solana? Like to me, it's like you have the rust. It's a contract. Everyone can read it. Right. But that's not actually what's happening. And Solana is whether that's still true. Mert, you might have some comments here. Relatively known for having some closed source programs. And that's like a mentality that people are looking to actively change. Yeah, so I would say, so the smart contracts that code uses have always been open source. It's the application that runs on your phone. It's the software that runs in the back end that plugs into the application and plugs into those smart contracts that has been closed source. So all the major wallets today that we're aware of on Solana are closed source. You can't see the like lines of software for how they work. You, you know, the, they're self-custodial but they're full trust because you can't see how it actually works for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So probably a good sidetrack here just for a few seconds, the closed source narrative on Solana. So Garrett, to answer your question, Ted's right. It's the smart contracts. There's a distinction between the programs on chain and the applications, right? So when you use phantom, most of what you're using is not actually a smart contract, if anything at all. It's just, it's just a pure application, but you don't know what the application is like. You don't know what kind of transaction it's going to initiate, how the transaction is structured, et cetera. And so the application is closed sourced. Uh, smart contracts, it's kind of weird on Solana, but you basically build the contract and you have bytecode that gets deployed on chain. Now, you, you probably can't read the bytecode unless you're a, a cyborg. Um, and... But but if you if you know what the source was, you can kind of verifiably link those two things together and say, like, when I compile this code, it's going to um, uh, result in this bytecode. And then that's usually what Ethereum has, where you have verifiable builds. On Solana, you kind of have that, but it's quite lacking. And, all, and, and a lot of DeFi protocols on Solana are open source, um, but um, you need to have that other step in there as well, which is verifiably linking those two together and saying like, okay, this code on GitHub was actually what's, is actually what's on the chain. Anyways, um, so that's a, that's a little aside. One thing I'm curious about, Ted, is you also mentioned earlier, which is you guys were one of actually the first developer platforms really for, or um, like stuff like this. And open sourcing leads to a lot of interesting questions uh, around business model right? Especially in crypto, it's like, well, you know, I'll, people are afraid to open source their code because they think somebody will fork it, slightly reduce the fees and do some sort of vampire attack. How do you just think generally about open source business models and what also made you guys go with this open source um, approach? Great question. You know, like I said earlier, when you evaluate options, there's always risk and reward. And so the, the two options, well, the three options here is on one side, we could keep everything as closed source as possible. On the other end of the spectrum, we could open source everything. And then in between, there's a whole spectrum of open sourcing some stuff, but not others. As we work through those options, we, you know, the, the risks with open sourcing are just like you said, you know, could people find flaws in the code? Could people fork it and copy it and take it for themselves? And so those are definitely things we evaluated. 
On the other side, though, we felt like the potential reward outweighed those risks. And mainly, you know, on one side, it's building credibility for code. I think people, you know, they look at the code app today and they're like, wow, that's a really simple, beautiful thing. And so they assume that the, you know, the, the underlying infrastructure is probably simple as well. It's like, actually, no, there's over 700,000 lines of code that come together to make this simple experience work. I think people are going to be shocked how complex, sophisticated, and beautiful the underlying software code is that makes this app work. So that was, that was the one thing. It was like, we really believe in this app. We really believe in what we're doing. And we should, you know, put our money where our mouth is. If we think this should be trusted and we think this is beautiful, then let's put it out there and let's let people see. Now, we're not saying it's going to be perfect. You know, no doubt people are going to find flaws. They're going to have critiques. They're going to have questions. But for us, that's almost the exciting part. That's what we're looking forward to. I, you know, I told the team, like, listen, our hope is that people point out critiques and challenges and flaws with this code base because it means then we're now working together to make it even better. And so we sort of, we want to put our money where our mouth is, put it out there. But we also think it's like, if our goal is to, you know, the mission of code is to make it compelling for the average person to control their own money, how can we say the average person is controlling their own money if they can't even see how it works? Or, you know, there's nobody they can look to who they trust, who, who can evaluate for themselves how the code works. And so, yes, there's business model, but we just think this is an incredibly sophisticated system. Over time, no doubt, people will take parts of it and try to copy parts of it. But this is like if somebody, you know, the analogy I use is if there was all the parts for a Tesla, the thousands and thousands of parts for a Tesla sitting in the parking lot, could you put it together and build a car? Yeah, maybe eventually over time, but it's a lot more complex than that. So we think over time, you know, and it keeps us honest, like we continue to build it out. We're going to like to take fees, you know, on the micropayments, we take one penny per fee but we think that will be worth it for developers. And, you know, it's just like Solana. Yeah, there's costs using Solana. You could fork it and make it cheaper, but it's not worth the effort given that they're being fair with the fees. And so we think it's the same thing here. Yeah, I think it's absolutely the right play, especially when it involves the facilitation of money. Open source makes a big difference. And especially in an ecosystem that maybe isn't historically the best example of open source, more and more solid teams open sourcing their code is just a positive. You did mention about uh, critiques, uh, people, you, you want people to critique, right? That's kind of, that's a very valid reason for actually open sourcing as well. One of the critiques that you guys get, which I think is pretty stupid personally, uh, is about using Kin instead of USDC for these payments. I really don't like that because like, <laughs> I don't understand why people think they should dictate what other people should use as tokens uh, in, in their own applications. Like if you don't want to use it, don't use it. If you want to use it, use it. Um, but yeah, so the, the tribalism around that gets really weird for me. But I want to ask, how do you think about this? What do you have to say to these people who always just go on Twitter to talk about this? I, I just want to get your take for it uh, on it once and for all. It's a great question. And if I were to respond in one line, it would be, do you subscribe to Satoshi's vision or not? Do you subscribe to Satoshi's vision or not? The very first line of the Bitcoin white paper is a purely peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash. That's what got me excited in the beginning. 
And that's where our mission comes from, making it compelling for the average person to control their own money. Not making it easy. It's, it's more than easy. We have to show that it can be even better. It's like a chat app versus SMS. It's not just another option. It's not just free. It's better. There's group chat, video chat, all these things. And so when it comes to delivering on that mission, stable coins are not real crypto. Stable coins are not real crypto in our pursuit of just being so desperate to get people finally after 15 years to actually use crypto in their daily lives and still not succeeding as industry, we've started to compromise, compromise on what got us here, compromise on what got us excited. USDC is great. I think the companies behind it that launched it are great, but it is not real crypto. You're relying on a centralized entity to maintain a peg and you're relying on a centralized entity not to freeze your funds whenever they want. So what maybe that enables a compelling experience. And I get the whole argument. You know, one of our values seek to understand. I, I seek to understand. I get the argument of, well, the nice thing about USDC is it doesn't go down in value. I get that. But it's not real crypto. And so this is definitely something we're being contrarian on. Like only Kin has the speed of Solana with the decentralization of Bitcoin. And we think there's like something powerful and special there. And just like early Bitcoin miners got to share in the, the value that was created on the network, can users and developers and publishers share in the value of the creation that's built with this new global payments platform? And so we think there's something on one side more true to the vision, but also on the other side, something that can be very compelling uh, as we get this going. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And I have a few comments. Like, it's interesting how people that are interested in DPEN don't say anything or make complaints. Why is DPEN not using USDC? You know, it's like, no, they're using the token to create a network and they think it's better. It's more native. It's crypto specific. And that's the same thing with Ken. And also, if you use the code app, it's not that you have to say, like, I'm just going to send you three Ken. You can actually say, like, there's like 20 plus currencies you can choose from, right? And it'll give you the equivalent. It's similar to if you're buying stock on some brokerage platform, you can actually say how many shares you want or you can say how many dollars you want. It makes the experience really, really easy. Yeah, like the average person, when we show them code, you know, you hand them digital paper cash, their, their first reaction is, wow, wow, that's amazing, wow. And then their first question is not, but why is it kin? You know, because to your point, like they don't even see kin. It's like, hey, I just got $5 of kin. I got $5, that's what it feels like. Their first question is not, but why is it kin? That's a crypto industry insider question. You know, because there's all these narratives we could talk about around USDC and why there's not payments yet. The question instead is, what can I do with it? So it's almost like, you know, which cryptocurrency to use? We think there's a ton of powerful things about kin, but ultimately that question right now is irrelevant. No average user, when I hand them digital paper cash, goes, but why is it kin? Not one. I've never once had that question. Instead, it's, but what can I do with it? And that's where we think micropayments are very powerful. And that's also where we think there's a powerful opportunity to use real crypto. You know, no centralized entity maintaining the peg because, you know, if I have a dollar today in my account and I want to spend 25 cents, does it really matter if I only have 90 cents in my account tomorrow or $1.20? It doesn't matter. I'm using it to use it now, not as a speculative investment. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And before we move on, I maybe you can touch on... Because you mentioned decentralization of kin a few times now, and you guys have already sought or, or obtained regulatory clarity because you've 
been at this for a while now and you've, you've gotten it, right? So there's some clarity there. So can you maybe talk about that for people who are just unfamiliar? Because I don't think many people know the story here. So we, we launched Kin. I, I am, quote unquote, the founder of Kin. Okay. And the reason why Kin is compelling to us, like, do we own a bit of Kin? Yeah, we own a bit of Kin, right? Like, obviously, just like Satoshi owns a bit of Bitcoin and Anatoly owns a bit of Soul. Like, of course, of course, that's there. But more importantly, we built it for ourselves. What would we want as a developer? And that's why today, you know, it's super fast. It's on Solana. We were the first ones to get there of any other crypto project. We also don't want it to be beholden to some foundation. Oh, you get a grant, but you don't. Oh, let's pay all these people all this inflation, but we won't tell anybody about it. And all the sellers are going to have to hold it. No, we don't want that. We want it fully decentralized and fully distributed. I don't have to rely on anybody that they're going to print a bunch of money, blow a peg, or change the rules of the game. And so that's where we started building Kin, you know, and we love the name Kin because it's all working together to create this like better currency and this better future together. But all good things get attacked, you know? So when we first launched Kick in 2010, yeah, we went zero to a million users in 15 days, million to two million users in seven days. And what happened next? BlackBerry kicked us off their platform and sued us for patent infringement. And we lost 99% of our users over the next three weeks. That's a part of the story that's sometimes left out. We went from the number one app across all the app stores to being totally forgotten in the space of six weeks. But, you know, BlackBerry, BlackBerry was afraid. You know, wait, I thought nobody would be able to do this. You know, build it like this is our thing. This is how we sell Blackberries. And so they wanted to punish the first one through the wall. But we built it back up. And three, four years later, I remember because I screenshot, I was sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. It became the number one free social app in the US once again. And so Kin went on a similar journey. You know, we're the first Web2 company to launch a cryptocurrency. We did the absolute best we could with the rules as they were described. You know, hired the absolute best lawyers, tried to do everything, KYC'd everything, did all these things that nobody else was doing to try to be above board as possible. But once again, you know, it was successful, but threatening, you know, almost $100 million, $98 million token sale. Um, you know, there's lots of token sales happening at the time, but the SEC came after us. And so they sued us for an illegal securities offering. And so we spent, it was actually absolutely devastating to the momentum of the cryptocurrency. No exchange could touch it. Developers had questions about it. It was brutal, devastating. You know, Kin couldn't be the business model we needed to be for Kick. We ended up selling Kick Messenger in a fire sale because it was either that or just dump a bunch of Kin that the market could not support and would just hurt everybody. And so rather than hurt anybody, Kick did not sell a single Kin. It gave up its, you know, first and only child, if you will, uh, in, in a fire sale. Uh, but what it meant is we worked it through with the SEC and, and the outcome was we agreed that the original sale of Kin was a securities offering, but that today and going forward, it was not. So, you know, the past is the past, sort of like Ripple, fine, like something about what happened in 2017, that's okay. What's important to us is that we all agree that Kin is not a security today. And so when the SEC offered us that as a settlement, we took it, we were super excited about it. We paid a $5 million fine, 
and Kin was allowed to continue. And so I think that's another exciting thing. You have the SEC today talking about how all these cryptocurrencies are securities. Like Kin has already passed that test and now can rebuild on the other side. Yeah, that's quite a story. And I think most people have this erroneous notion of entrepreneurship where it's just some guy with a monopoly money mustache and just making a lot of money off workers, but it's it's really just pain the whole time and ups and downs. So kudos to you guys. I, for... I think that's exactly right. And I think what, you know, what, what separates the entrepreneurs from everybody else is like, how much do you believe? How much are you willing to endure? Right? Like, so Facebook and Telegram went through a similar thing at the time. The SEC came after Telegram. And uh, I think it was Congress came after Facebook and Libra. And what did those two companies do? They walked away. For us, that wasn't good enough. We believed. We were all in. We would fight to the death. And so I think that's part of the entrepreneurial journey is like it has to be something you're willing fighting for because to your point, it's going to be a ton of pain. Mm. Ton of pain. With this micropayments product, which really is first of its kind in a sense, and certainly wasn't really. Have you guys possible. used it? Sorry to jump in, Mert. Have you guys used it? Wait, let's take a look at this. Let's do a live action demo. Okay. So, yeah, if you scroll down there, Gary. Yep. Pay with code. Yeah. Now, let's try this out. Pay with code. Scan the code. All right. So, I've got my code app pulled up. I'm going to scan this. There we go. Swipe to pay. Okay, this is really easy. I don't know if you can all see this. Pull the receipt onto your phone. Swipe to pay. Bam. Articles pulled up. That's so Boom. quick. That is so quick. That actually is really cool. <laughs> That's awesome. And and so what just happened there is one of our developers just made 24 cents deposited into his crypto wallet app. Because that's all you need. It's a totally open, permissionless system. So as a developer, you just say, how much do you want to charge? And what wallet address do you want the money sent to? And so then all the funds minus a penny fee, which comes to us to cover costs, uh, goes into your wallet address right away. That is dope. And I, I just downloaded that. I just got a new phone yesterday. So I had to re-download the app. D downloading the app, getting my first scan, and then opening that article altogether probably took 30 seconds. So that was, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> So it's super like magical. It's just as magical as digital paper cash, even more magical. Uh, it also works really well on mobile. So if you're on mobile, you click pay with code, it deep links, opens the code app, you swipe to pay, and then boom, it goes back and unlocks the article. So it's just like a super slick experience. But for developers, the thing we hear that's most encouraging is people are like, there is nothing like this in the world. There's just nothing like this in the world. And so that gets us really excited. Yeah, and it's beyond the tech, right? It, uh, it sounds so lame, but it's like how you how it makes you feel when you actually do it. Like just then, it's not like I'm pulling up my typical Web three wallet. I'm sending USDC. It's like that. That doesn't make me feel anything. That was cool. So like people remember that. Yeah, you're like whoa, that and and that experience is not just for somebody who's in crypto who's seen all these experiences. Like you should show that to somebody who's not in crypto. Like get them to get the code app, hand them some cash, and then be like, hey unlock this article with the, the code app and they'll go, they'll have the exact same reaction, even more like, wow, that is amazing. Maybe I'm jumping ahead here. I just want to know, okay, so you have these micropayments now and, and this is sick. It's pretty new. What is the plan? We're coming close to 2024. I'm just wondering, what is the plan for code? What are you going to focus on? Like what's kind of next for you? 
So we're focused on driving adoption of micropayments. Uh, so for us, like especially as we transition to being a developer platform, you know, we think the trust building, sort of the goodwill we can get from open sourcing everything under an MIT license, which lets you do whatever you want, is like very important and powerful. So that's where we're focused on. You know, we've been focused on for the last couple of weeks, two weeks, is getting everything ready to open source. So that's going live. You know, we're recording this on Friday, but going live on Tuesday today when a lot of people are going to be listening to this. And then it's building up the platform. You know, we're we're in the game with developers. People are excited about it. What else do they want? So, for example, the next thing we're launching is notifications. So lots of these web developers saying, "Hey, I put this on my website. Twenty-five cents to log in, or fifty cents to get an article." Wow, that's amazing. But how do I get their attention again when I have my next article or when the next tournament is starting or whatever it is? And we're like, hmm, great question. And we have a ton of experience on this with Kick, you know, the native app, web app, and chatbot platform. Why don't we integrate chatbots? Like, why don't you just be able to, anybody you've paid, you can now send them a message. Hey, Ted, there, here's a new article. Hey, Ted, a new tournament is starting. And so that's the next feature we're launching for developers is notifications. And that's something that web developers just do not have today. That's an example. That's the next thing coming out. But just listening to developers, what do they want? How can we empower them? We have like a huge roadmap of features that we think are going to be just more and more powerful. And the advantage of this platform for developers is going to comp compound more and more and more. Awesome. Great to hear. That's, uh, I mean, obviously one of my core missions is to make Solana the best experience for developers humanly possible. This this will go a long way of helping that. Um, while we're talking about that, I guess I'm curious at a high level for just any developer who might be listening to this, what is like the high level flow here? Like, do you, uh, you have an SDK and you have um, obviously a developer platform. What is, like, do I... Um, is there like a component that's ready to build or just out of the box and then I embed like maybe the content inside that component and then you do the rest of the work or like what is the high level kind of step-by-step -step flow for developers to incorporate this? So it's super simple. Like as a developer, you grab the SDK and basically what that will do is just put that pay with code button on your site and then you just say, how much do you want to charge? Where do you want the money to go? And then you put in like a success URL if they actually pay, where do you want to send them? Or a uh, uh, decline URL, if they decide they want to cancel, where do you want to send them? And that's pretty much it. Like we've tried to make it as simple as possible for developers to get up and running with this. But as you, you said, like we're going to build some apps ourselves to show what's possible and maybe something in the publishing uh, theme. Because again, like we've built this amazing tech, 700,000 lines of code underneath that power all this. Uh, with this beautiful, simple experience for developers on top. So it lets us build experiences really quickly as well. And so just like Apple, you know, built a bunch of the first apps for the iPhone, uh, we might try building some of the first apps for this platform as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And um, just help me understand, is it, what, what is the SDK? Like, is it, is it a React SDK? Is it pure JavaScript? Um, how, how is kind of your go-to-market for developers there? Uh, it's a great question. This is where it gets like, I get out of my depth a bit. Uh, and I expose that I haven't been coding since university. Um, but, you know, they, we've, the team has translated the SDK into a bunch of languages now. So you can go and see those. There'll be more to come. Um, but yeah, we're trying to support all developers, whatever environment language you want to use.
this might be a bit out there, Ted, but you know how Brave has tried to essentially pay people to for their attention to look at advertising? Do you think micropayments will ever work like that? For example, if you had someone come read one of your articles, they unlocked it for 20 cents, and you have a new article, and to actually get them to check that out, you could almost put up a quest of sorts. It's like, hey, micropayment, five cents, unlock it for you know opening and reading this article. I know that can probably be gamed. Just curious, do you think there's anything there? So if I play with it a bit, because I think it's a really interesting idea, you know, because uh, the the other really compelling thing, so what can crypto do that nothing else can do? It, it's global, you know, it's inexpensive, it's micropayments, all these things, but it can also do two-way payments. So maybe, for example, you know, we make it really easy for the user to mute or unsubscribe from any developer, right? Oh, this guy's annoying me, I want to mute him. Or, you know, this app is annoying me, I want to just unsubscribe. Boom, they're gone, you'll never hear from them again. But could you offer as a publisher or developer, listen, I know you're not listening to me anymore, but here's a dollar. Please subscribe again. And here's why. So could you as a user set a threshold to your point for 10 cents, 15 cents, where you'll actually let people notify you and try to get your attention um, because they're paying you to do so. So we'll, we'll see. We think there's all sorts of interesting things in there. Ted, I'm curious how you think about doing like institutional partnerships, BD. You know how Polygon's really gone hard on getting like classic Web2 companies and brands. Do you think that's something that code would focus on? Do you think there's a lot of value to that in crypto right now? Initially, no. Over time, yes. Okay. Whenever you're launching a new platform, it's almost a fool's errand to try to work with big companies. Yeah. If you throw a ton of money their way, they'll take it. Sure. You know, if you just want a name on a press release and you throw a bunch of money, you can get them to do that. But you don't want that. That's not what's actually valuable. What's actually valuable is finding people who have the capacity and passion to actually work with you to build for this platform that never existed before. And so that's where we think, you know, on the publishing side, yeah, maybe we'll work with some bigger brands, not the top brands because they're already making a ton of money from subscriptions, but sort of the 80% down, if you will, because I think this is going to be super powerful for them. And it's a super simple experience. But on the developer side, it's futile to try to work with big gaming studios. They'll take your money and then they'll probably never think about it again because they're busy and they're bureaucratic and they're slow and they're risk adverse. Much better to start by working with those passionate indie developers to show these use cases, show to the world. And then it's great for them. They're early to a new platform and can build momentum. And then it's also great for everybody else. And again, I think this is where the idea of using a cryptocurrency like Kin is very powerful. You know, just like being an early miner on Bitcoin, these early developers on the code payments platform are getting Kin. And today that Kin is pretty inexpensive. But just like the miners, if more and more people start using Bitcoin, Bitcoin becomes more valuable. If more and more developers start using Kin, Kin becomes more valuable. And so I think it's like a super empowering thing. It's almost setting up the strategy to focus on and work with those indie developers, get them to help show the rest of the world what you can do with this. But unlike other platforms of the past, you know, Facebook owns all the top apps on iPhone, not the indie developers. So unlike those platforms in the past, actually have them share in the economic upside as well. And we think that is just super powerful. And one of our values, you know, we work hard to find the win-win. We get excited about that as a, a win-win. Yeah, the bottoms-up versus top-down approach and go-to-market and partnerships is an interesting point, a good parallel to kind of what Solana has done versus some of its competitors who have maybe 
landed some of the bigger brand partnerships who actually have announced their sunsetting. So it seems like what you're, what you're saying is basically turned out to be true in, in empirical evidence. So that's pretty cool. And maybe talking about Solana now, um, obviously, since you guys have started, Solana has been up and down and for the past year, at least, it's been mostly down in terms of sentiment and, and activity. But now you're seeing maybe a resurgence. Actually, not maybe, definitely a resurgence. I was actually looking at the block score and it was exceeding a thousand transactions per second, non-voting, which is pretty crazy. And you guys have been through it all. So I guess I'm curious, what do you think, what do you make of, because, you know, you guys obviously have some contrary ideas as, as we've seen in, in this episode. What do you make of the entire crypto landscape right now? Like, you know, you have Blast launching a new L2, which is not even an L2. It's a bridge with, <laughs> it's a multi-sig and uh, maybe Ponzi level marketing schemes. Um, a lot of new L2s being launched. Um, Solana kind of fire dancer coming out. There's just so much going on, I guess. How do you guys at Kin or Code think about the crypto landscape internally? It's only a matter of time. You know, it's only a, a, a saying my, my grandmother would say to me is, you know, don't worry, Ted, the cream always rises to the top. It just takes some time. And I think we're seeing the same thing playing out here in crypto, like crypto, because there's so much money at stake. There's such tribal nature because of that. Like it's, and all these narratives get produced. It's going to take time for people to realize what actually is the cream and for that cream to rise to the top. And so that's, you know, I have never wavered once in my belief of Solana because it's, it's sort of what we saw in the, in Solana, when we were looking at all the options back in 2019, is sort of what developers are saying they see today in the code payments platform. There's nothing else like this, right? When when we looked at Solana, we're like, "There's nothing else like this," and that's true even to today. Like I was talking to somebody, yeah, like Coinbase, great company, Base, great L2, but transactions on Base are still 1,000 times more expensive than transactions on Solana. Like to put it very bluntly, what that means is we could never build code on base. And so I think there's going to be some time for all these just narratives to work their way out and for the, the cream to rise to the top. But I think we're seeing that now. And I think one day we'll look back and people will just be like, yeah, obviously Solana was going to win. Like I, I would go so far as to say to me, it's obvious that in the short term here, Solana will just simply replace Ethereum because there's nothing Ethereum can do that Solana can't do better. And anything where you try to say, well, I can do this and could do that, if you push into it, you'll realize it's just a story. Well, it's more decentralized. You can run it on your Raspberry Pi. Sorry, who cares about that? And so I think we're seeing right now in real time the narratives working out. And the, the crazy thing about crypto is once these narratives tip, they move fast. And so I think we're about to see a flood of value moving out of Ethereum and out of other L1s and into Solana. I think this is just the beginning. You said on our last podcast, people need a narrative for why they don't have product market fit. And that once you have a breakout app, those narratives go away. <laughs> they evaporate. Uh, I thought that was a pretty, that hit, me, that hit home pretty hard. Um, you know, I do think an interesting thing about code is that it's an L2 of sorts on Solana. You use durable nonces, you have these time locks, et cetera. It's pretty technical 
technically complicated, at least when I was trying to read, read about it. You'll hear Mert will, will actually put out on Twitter like, hey, if we need L2s, they should use Solana as the base layer. Like, why would you not have an optimized base layer? But L2s aren't really a thing on Solana, except code is maybe the one project I know at least that says like we have an L2 on Solana. So I'm just curious, is that really just a code unique thing or do you expect to see other projects do the same? I think if you want to deliver experience like code delivers today, you need it. But that the need for that to deliver that type of experience will go down with time. Okay. Like we're building for Solana at a point in time. And the outcome of ending up building an L2, which by the way, we didn't even call it an L2 until two years later when we realized it just looked a lot like the Ethereum L2s. And, you know, that was not the intent. It's just sort of how it all ended up. But, you know, it started very simply. I sign up for code. You sign up for code, Garrett. I try to hand you $5 of digital paper cash. Transaction fails. Why did the transaction fail? It's because your account hasn't been finalized yet on the blockchain. So what do we do? We tell Ted, whoa, 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 you, you know, that, that failed. Just wait for a while and try again. It's like, well, then it's not cash, right? Cash doesn't fail. So we needed to be able to queue up transactions. We need to be able to say, okay, Garrett's created 12 words on his device. And so we've submitted, he signed a transaction, submitted a transaction to create that account, pay the rent on the blockchain. But now he also has a transaction queued up from Ted to give him that $5 of digital paper cash. Put, submit the first one, make sure it fully confirms on the blockchain, then play out the second one, submit the second one. And so that's where it all began is just that very simple need of being able to onboard people really quickly. Boom, you have an account, boom, you have cash. So that's where it began. But once we had that system, we started to be able to realize we could do all sorts of interesting things. That's where the privacy system came from. Instead of sending Garrett $5 of digital paper cash, what if we send him, you know, I'll take a different number to make the uh, analogy more obvious. Instead of sending him $5.42, where then it's going to be clear, I'm just going to look on the blockchain for $5.42. Oh, that's Ted. Look how much money he has. What if we send him five ones from one account, four dimes from another account, and two pennies from a third account? there's lots of people sending four ones. There's lots of people, or five ones. There's lots of people sending four dimes. There's lots of people sending two pennies, you know, just to give you a simplest version of the analogy. So now we have one transaction, or sorry, three transactions laddering up into one payment in that analogy. And again, our sequencer lets us schedule all those things and submit them. And then even though we're interacting with smart contracts, we know that you're good for the money. So you receive these $5.42 in a very private way, but then you can instantly turn around and hand it to Merck. So there's all sorts of things that our L2 like gives us power to do. We can program very complex payments. Oh, 24 cents goes here and one cent goes there because of this L2. This L2 will be 100% open source now. So everybody can see for it works for themselves how it works. Um, the need for that might go down over time. You know, there's some privacy stuff in token 2022. You know, the, the blockchain is getting faster and more reliable. Like I expect a lot of this to be built into the layer one over time. But if you want to create that quality of experience for users and that quality of experience for developers, today, the, the layer two we've built is super powerful. One thing I want people listening to this to understand from uh, Ted's points here is that they worked backwards from the customer and out of these pieces of tech as they needed it. They didn't just launch an L2 and then wanted to see what they can build on top of it for the sake of it. So just want to make that clear. Is that a, uh, and, is that a controversial approach, Mer? Uh, Crypto <laughs> is, yeah, I don't know. You're like, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I was gonna say, yeah. So uh, with with regards to your point, Garrett, about L twos on Solana. So the fundamental thing here that that's being optimized is kind of finality, right? Like when you make a payment in in TradFi, let's say with Venmo, I mean it doesn't move in your bank, right? It, it moves in the records of Venmo, and then it gets settled after. And what what Code did is basically something similar. Like the system is fundamentally similar in in that when you make a payment. You, you have now a cryptographic guarantee with a durable nonce, and it's it's both ways, but it doesn't settle on the blockchain right away now because it just doesn't have to. I mean, you can if you want, but that's going to be like 400 milliseconds, which for the purpose of payments maybe isn't so sufficient. And it talks of it being 200 milliseconds. Maybe you won't need that, but right now you do. And so that's why that that exists. And so the parallel to L2s here is, well, in, in an L2, what, what ends up happening is you make the transaction on the L2, and then it's controlled by a multisig. And then at some point, it gets batch processed into the L1. Uh, I would say codes the same security properties as an L2 because with the durable nonce, you can also revoke your kind of, like it's it's two-sided. Um, and at the end of the day, you're trusting this other sequencer, which is code in this case, to also land it on the, on the chain. It's the exact same thing, except it's enshrined and much quicker. So just just want to say, uh, if, 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 if that's the sole reason why you're using an L2, then enshrining it on Solana is going to be much better. Probably the reason most people use L2s right now is to piggyback off of Ethereum's story and, and user base, right? That seems to be the most common one. So just want to make that clear for the audience. Ted, you, you've chatted about um, maybe Bitcoin Lightning Network and kind of the other L2s in, in, in Solana. And obviously, so you think your approach is or, or your, your philosophy is that, okay, it's only a matter of time before the cream rises to the top and Solana is, kind of takes over. Um one thing I'm curious about is like, okay, so imagine a case in which code is extremely successful um, and within five years and it's 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 outgrown Solana, right? Which is kind of what Tolly wants, which is the protocols and applications to outgrow Solana. Would you consider doing an app chain? Um, or or like how how would you, how should product-minded people you think think about building on a general L1 versus getting their own blockchain with an app chain like a Cosmos? It's a great question. And the short answer is we don't know, right? Like we got to look at all the options every step of the way, you know, with the recent increase in the price of soul to, again, even in the Solana community to show you how narrative driven it is. Everybody's all excited, you know, wow, it's up three times. It's amazing. Finally, everybody's recognizing that Solana is the best. And, and me and the code team are sitting there and saying, we always knew Solana was the best. We didn't need the price to tell us that. Instead, what this has done is made our costs three times as this as expensive. And because we subsidize all those costs on behalf of the users and each payment actually is roughly 50 transactions on chain. Each user has, I think it's eight different accounts. You'll be able to see all this in the open source software. You know, these numbers start to add up. And so, you know, I've been talking with Anatoly about, okay, well, we've talked about some of the ways to reduce these fees on the account side and the transaction side. Like we need those now. You know, we don't need them, need them. But if it goes up another 10x, which I think it, Maybe it will, obviously not financial advice, who knows. But then for developers at some point, this becomes, you know, we're back to the beginning. Transactions are super expensive today. So I don't know if that, my ideal would be for Solana, the L1, to find ways to keep transactions and account costs low. But another option could be forking Solana over time, building a side chain to Solana. We'll see, but I would personally much prefer not to have to go down that road. That's actually what we did do with Stellar, right? We spun up our own fork of Stellar, 
that gives you lots of control, but it's also lots of overhead. So we'd rather we do what we're best at, let Anatoly and the team do what they're best at. So I'm really hoping that they can find ways to keep costs down over time such that we can stay on the, the main L1 chain. Yeah, it's interesting. It's probably reductive to put it like in this equation, but it's almost like your profit margin that you're making as code being related to Solana. Like, does the price of Solana go up also drive a lot more volume through, you know, Ken or sorry, code? And then Ken is used more and the value is going up, et cetera. So like for every, you know, your fees go up three times on Solana, but is your profit from Ken and just what's going on in code, is that going up 10 times? You're like, okay, well, that's worth it. But at some point, maybe that's not the case. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, totally. All right, Ted, I got one more question for you, maybe before we close up. Last time we talked a little bit about Bitcoin and L2s on Bitcoin. I'm just curious, has your thesis on Bitcoin changed or what do you think about Bitcoin recently? Great question. Um, Like Bitcoin is what got us excited all those years ago. You know, I remember being at a Bitcoin meetup in 2011 with Gavin, you know, the lead developer of Bitcoin. There's only 10 people in the room, something like that. And on one side, we realized this idea of making it compelling for the average person to control their own money is incredibly powerful. You know, we live in this increasingly complex world. All the, you know, you see all these big pieces moving around and all these challenges sort of coming up the pipe really quickly. And so the idea that you would have this like open financial system where the average person controls their own money, you realize is not just interesting, but might end up being critical. And so that's what you see in our post. Like we subscribe to Satoshi's vision of a purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash. And so I think a lot of people though will look at that and say, but then why do you use kin? And so the, the question we're asking ourselves is just like Solana is replacing Ethereum as the leading candidate to be that killer smart contract platform. We think kin is best positioned to replace Bitcoin as that killer medium of exchange. You know, we love Bitcoin. We're super excited about what Satoshi built. But right now, it's a dead end. You know, even talking about Lightning, people talk about it all the time. If you want to do self-custodial Lightning, meaning that users are in control of their own money, it's it's economically impossible. Every time a user opens a channel, that's an L1 fee. Every time they expand a channel, that's an L1 fee. And so while we get super excited about Bitcoin as a vision, we think it's a dead end when it comes to the implementation. And so maybe one thing I'll, I'll say here at the end is if, if the vision of Bitcoin gets you excited, then we implore you to like look at the open source code we've released, the 700,000 line, get in there, help us build it with us. Because we think you'll see that just like that early version of Bitcoin when it got open source, got a bunch of people excited. We think if you look at the, the open source stuff we've built, you might just get equally excited as well. And, you know, Ken is the only cryptocurrency with the speed of Solana and the decentralization of Bitcoin. So maybe that's the last thing I'll say is like, I think we'll get a lot of hate for, you know, including Satoshi's vision in our, in my post about open sourcing everything. But I think if you get past the narratives and past the tribalism, I think you'll see that code making it magical, simple and safe to use Kin, which is running on the most beautiful blockchain Solana 
is our absolutely best bet of completing the vision that Satoshi started. I actually think it's kind of bearish that Bitcoin is trying so hard right now to find ordinals, L2s, different use cases for Bitcoin that in a sense, I actually think take away and detract from like Bitcoin store value use case. I just don't think any of those other things are going to be better. What's built on Solana or Ethereum. Um, maybe it's nice in the midterm to have those fees spike up. I, I just don't see in the long term how that's actually good. It's almost like you lost your, your one word that describes Bitcoin, which is like, or two words, digital gold. And now it's like trying to be all these different things. Well, this is the interesting thing about Bitcoin, right? Like, again, coming back to narratives, people are like, oh, Bitcoin is the best store of value. It's the best digital gold. Is it? Why is it? Well, nobody's ever asked me that before. Uh, let me see. It's because it's the most decentralized. I'm like, so you're telling me if I have cryptocurrency on the Solana blockchain that somebody could take that from me? How would that work? Well, I... You know, I guess we'd have to go to the thousand plus validators and get them to collude to to block your transactions. I guess we can't actually take your money because, you know, 12 words on Solana are just as good as 12 words on Bitcoin. And so pretty quickly, you realize even the store of value narrative is just that. It's just a narrative. And so I think that's the exciting phase we're coming into crypto. Like all these narratives are very powerful in an era where there are no use cases. But in an era that there are use cases, the only thing that matters is those use cases themselves. And I think that's what's exciting for Solana. That's what's exciting for Kim. So I'm 2024 is going to be one exciting year. That is a beautiful way to end the conversation, Ted. Ted, thank you so much for joining us again. Like I said, the first guest to come on twice. Um, and that's for a reason. So everybody, you got to go check out the first episode. It's crazy. We go into the full history of Ted's career and also code. Um, and this was beautiful as well. I'm really excited about code going fully open source. It's not only amazing for code itself, but I also think it'll like set hopefully a precedence for other programs and projects in Solana and outside of Solana. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Great chat as always. All right, I've got a little ending note here. First, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. If you really liked it, hit subscribe. But secondly, make sure you sign up for DAS. This is BlockWorks' biggest institutional conference happening in London in March. I've included a link in the show notes and also a discount code. Get 20% off. Make sure to use Lightspeed20 when you sign up. All right, I'll see you there. And I'll see you next time on Lightspeed. <laughs>